Hi, everyone. Welcome to Hound Opinions. I'm your host, Bill Mayeroff. All right, so this is the last episode of Season 1 of Hound Opinions, and I have to thank you all for listening, subscribing, and giving me feedback. I'd wanted to do this for a long time, and I'm so excited that I finally got it off the ground. I've had an absolute ball doing it, and I really hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. All right, so for the Season 1 finale, I've got a really cool guest. Most of you probably know Dan Shackner as the guy wearing a striped shirt, wrangling a football field full of puppies, and getting peed and pooped on every year as the referee of the Puppy Bowl. But he's so much more than that. He's also a longtime advocate for dog rescue and foster, as well as an ambassador for the Sato Project, which rescues abandoned dogs in Puerto Rico. He's also just a really fun human. All right, thanks for tuning in to the finale of Season 1 of Hound Opinions. Don't worry, I'm not taking a break or anything. Season 2 will start just two weeks from today. All right, let's get to it. All right, Dan, well, thank you for joining me on this episode of Hound Opinions. I really, really appreciate it. Um, so, you know, first thing, you know, I want to dive into is, you know, most people, at least, at least these days, they know you as the Puppy Bowl referee. Um, so talk a little bit about just sort of how you got into it, you know, how, how you were even, how you were even approached for such a thing and, you know, how, how it, how it all started. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, Bill. Uh, so first of all, as we were talking about just briefly before we started recording, this is not the most, uh, usual job that it's not a typical job in any stretch of the imagination. I uh, got this gig, I guess you'd call it 10 years ago. Animal Planet knew me as a host. I had hosted a couple of one-hour shows for them. Prior to this, I was a host on a sports cable network called SNY here in New York City. Um, if there's any regional sports fans, it tracks the Mets and the Jets. Sure. Uh, and I had hosted a bunch of game shows and sports uh, rap shows for them. In addition to being a host prior to that on home improvement shows. So I'd kind of run the gamut, sports, home improvement, but certainly staying in that lifestyle world. Uh, they needed somebody to referee this thing called the Puppy Bowl, which at that point I think was in its seventh year. And it had been doing well. It is the original form of counter-programming, uh, meaning you know they knew they couldn't compete with the Super Bowl, but they could uh, present something that would be an alternative for viewers who maybe weren't interested in football or in those two particular teams playing. And it was a bit of a hit. And it started to grow in viewership every single year. They realized by year seven that they needed somebody to kind of be there. Now, at, prior to this, if you look at Puppy Bowl, the years one through seven, uh, we're on year 18 now. They had a referee, but it was just a producer who they dressed in a referee shirt and kind of had him standing on the sidelines, not doing too much, interacting, right. but not too involved. As time went on. Um, like I said, it became a more demanding position because the amount of puppies involved grew, the exposure grew, uh, and suddenly it was a much bigger event than anyone had anticipated. Plus, they needed somebody like I'm doing to you right now, uh, advocating for the puppy bowl and for animal adoption. So a human to put a voice to all the uh, animals that were being featured. So I auditioned, and the audition was pretty crazy. They <laughs> first wanted to, first they wanted a video. And now, how do you audition for a job that really has no job description other than <laughs> you're, right. you're officiating animals <laughs> in a fake football game. Uh, what does that audition look like? So they were like, just be creative. So what I did was I went to New York City dog parks, Long Island dog parks, um, 
got my hands on as many dogs as I could and uh, pretended to referee them. Uh, I also worked with, I think it was goldfish, hamsters. I just, it got, <laughs> I just basically did this compilation tape, which is out there on YouTube, of uh, me ridiculously trying to be a ref for a variety of animals, including my two small children at that point, who uh, okay. were like <laughs> two and four. And that, yeah, so that was sort of cobbled together into like a three-minute thing about how I dream, dreamt about doing this my whole life. And let me let me state for the record that in all in all honesty, this was a dream gig because I do have a lifelong love of sports and a love of animals. So to combine the two uh, was, I don't know, was was a dream. So I was pretty sincere in this uh, audition tape. They then wanted a meeting because they were afraid I looked too young, which is hilarious because I'm, <laughs> I'm in my 40s now and I was in my 30s then. And then yeah, I got the gig like a week or two later and I started and it's been, I'm on my 10th, 10th year right now. So that's, wow. that's how I went about the process. So, so what did they tell you before they filmed your first puppy bowl? Like, so, you know, there wasn't much guidance in terms of the audition or anything like that. So what kind of guidance did they give you, uh, before you went into your first taping? Right. Uh, that's a great question. If I have to stretch my mind here and think back to then, did they provide anything? Yes. They provided a starting lineup. So that's, of course, we provided every single year. And that starting lineup grows. Back then, I think maybe we're at 60 dogs. Now we're at nearly 100. Uh, so it was a smaller amount of dogs to get to know. But a starting lineup with the photos and the breed mixes of the dogs involved. And then... A sort of bullet point, you can't plan the puppy bowl because, of course, it has right. to be spontaneous. It's a game, so to speak. But it became more or less a framework that I had to follow. First quarter, we've got the national anthem. Second quarter, uh, we got a water bowl break, you know, hydration right. break, we called it. Then there's halftime, which is the kitty halftime. Third quarter, more antics. And the fourth quarter, we wrap it up and award the trophies. So I, I kind of had the framework in my head. A uh, little bit of behind the scenes magic here. There is a little bug in my ear that sure. I have a director talking to me through where he's just picking up on anything he might see that I haven't seen. We have about seven different cameras trained on the field. So he's got a good, you know, good expanse of vision. Right much better than me. And that's how we do puppy bowl. And we still do it the same way every year. Okay. Um, you know, what is it like sort of not on the field? You say, I mean, it's grown to about a hundred dogs, you know, before yeah. it was, it was 60 dogs. It, you know, it's grown, it keeps growing. What is, what is the scene like off the field? Oh, prior to the game or yeah. after the game? Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Prior to COVID, it was, chaos controlled chaos but sure still chaos we shot in a very small manhattan studio back when it was okay to gather in large groups in tight spaces right and uh the green room or waiting room prior to getting on the field was just a small like conference room where they put all these dogs in it was totally safe and of course there was people from the humane society and vets there to make sure that the dogs were well taken care of but it was pretty crazy it was like being in the subway at rush hour but surrounded by you know 100 dogs now <laughs> After COVID or during COVID, I should say, uh, props to the production team because they were still able to, I mean, in 2020, when all this hit, we didn't know if we'd be able to put on Puppy Bowl because of how we had shot it up until this point of time. Right. But uh, we found a uh, 
an abandoned hockey arena in upstate New York. Okay. Near Albany. Yeah. And it, it allowed us to social distance everything. So it allowed us to create a bigger, bigger field. Uh, it allowed the cameras to separate, uh, the jib cams that are up on top, gave them more room to move up and down. And then of course, allowed the dogs that are gathered and the rescues that are behind them to really spread out. So that is how we're doing it, I guess, from now on, because in 2021, uh, spoiler, we just, we did just shoot the puppy bowl already. Yeah. It's not live. Right. We, uh, we did it again. So that's, I think how the future, uh, is going to be a puppy bowl, a social distanced puppy bowl. And you know, to be honest on a practical level and a humane level, it is better for the animals to not be so pushed together. Right. Um, sometimes they're a little overstimulated. So by the time in the prior setup, uh, getting them onto the field, you know, they were already hyped up from being kind of real close proximity to one another. Now that they're six to 12 feet apart as they wait, when they arrive on the field, there are a lot of them seeing and interacting for the very first time. So right. um, it's better. It's it's just a better setup overall. Okay. Um, what is the process like for picking um, the, the dog, the puppies and the rescues that are involved? Yeah. They send us, used to be us, chasing the rescues and asking them what puppies you got coming down the pike. But now they thankfully uh, come to us. Uh, We, every year, the amount of rescues and shelters we work with grows and grows. I think it's like 50, at least 50 uh, different kinds. We're trying to just fit in as many different kinds as possible all around the country, sometimes all around the world. And they submit, you know, because look, we shoot in October, late October, and then we have a few months to edit, promote, do you know, the extra programming that's associated with it. Uh, so we have some time, but from the time they start submitting, you got to imagine like a dog that's on puppy bowl has got to be between three and six months of age. So they should be born early summer, right? Uh, sometime in the summer. So that's kind of how you have to plan it out. So once the summertime hits, we're already speaking to shelters. They're already coming to us and saying, hey, we've got a litter of puppies that are due to be born in July. We think they'd be good candidates for Puppy Bowl. And then they just send us photos, just like any other casting call. It's not hard because all puppies are essentially beautiful and adorable. I have yet to see an ugly puppy. Even the quote unquote ugly ones are (laughs) adorable. But uh, our goal is to showcase A, a variety of shelters and rescues, B, a variety of breeds and breed mixes and see different sizes, you know, different looks, different colors. Right. So it should be as varied as possible. Okay. And are are you an animal planet? Are you kind of constantly expanding the list of rescues and shelters that you're working with? Yeah. uh, We, in fact, like uh, I, I was saying before, we were able to do it again in spite of the pandemic, but Canada, Mexico, uh, the Caribbean, I think we had one dog from Venezuela. We're starting, our reach is starting to expand and expand outside of this country, which is pretty cool. Uh, just to showcase that it's not just here. You know, the animal overpopulation problem is is worldwide. Yeah. Uh, but yes, we do try to expand. And we keep, look, I mean, we may we have shelters that we work with every single year because they're so wonderful and dependable, but we're always trying to find new, uh, new responsible shelters to work with as well. Okay. Um so you, you talked about expanding the puppy bull's reach and, and expanding awareness beyond beyond the U.S. Um, yeah. So you are an ambassador for the Sato Project, um, yeah. which is, you know, to rescues abandoned dogs in Puerto Rico. Um, how did you uh, get involved with them? 
they're an incredible organization. I got to know them years ago because they were part of Puppy Bowl, I think maybe six years ago, and they invited me to go on one of their rescue missions down in Puerto Rico. For those that don't know, the Sado Project is known for, it's a really sad story how they came about, but there is a beach in Puerto Rico called Dead Dog Beach. And it's unfortunately named that because that is where people go to abandon dogs they no longer want or a a litter of puppies they no longer can take care of. Okay. And it is culturally, I'm not, the culture is changing, but when it all began, it was more culturally acceptable to do that. Uh, Puerto Rico, like many Latin American, uh, it's not, it's a territory, but Latin American countries and territories, dogs wandering in the street is not that uncommon. People are very used to it. And if anyone's traveled to South America, like I have, um, or to Puerto Rico or to Mexico or to Guatemala, they, you'll see dogs roaming the streets all the time. It's no big deal, especially in urban environments. Uh, Puerto Rico being such a concentrated little Island, it's got everything. It's got, you know, open country, but it's also got tight cities and dogs are everywhere. And spaying and neutering is not part of, well, it's not an, it's not part of their awareness to the degree it is in this in the United States. It's not even that Got high it. here, but it's not. It's really not high there. People simply don't do it. So that contributes to, you know, these this unfortunately named Dead Dog Beach. Uh, so they go to this beach, to the Sado Project. It's really incredible, and they find these litters. And you will. It is unfortunately like trying to. It's not hard, is what I'm trying to say. You you roam this Dead Dog Beach after. 20 minutes, you'll hear a whimpering and you'll go into a field or a bush behind a palm tree and you'll see a mom with six puppies. And so they'll rescue these dogs. They'll fly them to the United States. Well, again, I should say it's still the United States, but they'll fly them to the mainland. Hey, pup. They'll fly them to the mainland and they will uh, get them fostered or adopted almost right away. And it is an all-volunteer organization, including the pilots who fly the flights. So they invited me down there. We rescued a dog. We featured him on Puppy Bowl. It was amazing. Uh, since then, I've hosted fundraisers for them. I featured them on my social. We're currently working on a show, 15-minute show for Discovery's YouTube channel about oh, cool. their freedom flights. Uh, it's just, listen, I, I, and they're great, but they're just one of the incredible shelters out there. So, um, you know, I'm sure. to be a part uh, of it. So, you know, you said you ha- you've had a lifelong uh, love of animals and everything. Talk to me a bit about, you know, the animals you had growing up. Yeah. Uh, So my dad, let's go backwards even further. My dad was raised on a farm in South America. His dad moved from Europe in the 30s, uh, right before the war. And while many of his brothers moved, my dad's brothers moved to New York, uh, this brother wanted a giant amount of, he wanted the country and he wanted it cheap and he wanted it easy. And that was plentiful in South America. So moved to Uruguay, farm, every kind of animal you could imagine. And that's the environment my dad was raised in. Um, so I, when I came to the world, we had a love of animals. Now I didn't grow up on a farm. I grew up in suburban Long Island, hmm. uh, a couple of dogs, goldfish, hamster, typical, sure. typical thing, nothing too, nothing too crazy. Um, and then there was a period between high school, well, late high school, I guess, college, and really up until my 30s, where I didn't have a dog at all. I lived in New York City, still do. And, you know, living in the city and getting your career off track, on track and off track, right. it, was, uh, it, was, it was difficult to keep a dog, especially as a 20-something guy. And no excuses. It just wasn't on my radar. Um, right. Buildings, many buildings 
much easier now, but back then many buildings didn't even allow dogs. Uh, so it wasn't until I guess Poppy Bowl about 11 years ago that I got uh, back into fostering and it's been incredible ever since. So that's my background going into it. And by fostering, instead of adopting, I fostered over 30 dogs. There has been, I don't know, it's just a, it's, it's a merry-go-round of beautiful animals in my house, one after the it. other. And the best part is seeing them all get adopted afterwards. I love it. Um, do you foster through, through a whole bunch of different organizations? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I try not to just stick to one. There's so many amazing organizations out there, and I don't want to just as even though I am an ambassador for Sato Project, they're they're one of many, and it's not like you're exclusive. I mean, the whole idea is to get animals adopted. So just you know, sometimes it's not even a puppy bowl. Most of the time, it's not necessarily a puppy bowl related shelter or even business oriented or TV oriented. It's just my local shelter uh, here in New York City. We have one called Social Teas here in the East Village, and you know they're they have a storefront but it's a New York city storefront. So it can't right. house a lot of animals. <laughs> so they depend on their foster network. And that's kind of what tipped me off. I mean, living in the city, you realize, gosh, the overpopulation problem is even more pronounced when you don't have the real estate to support it. So sure. the network of foster parents, uh, which is continuing to grow and incredible to see is so essential. Yeah. To the process. Um, all right. So you talked about earlier, you talked about, you know, your history doing, doing sports shows and, and doing game shows and things like that. You know, you had this, this sort of burgeoning TV career, hosting career. Could you have predicted for a second that this is, no. you know, what was going to happen? No, because when I auditioned for this particular project, it was one of several things I had going on. And to me, it was just, I mean... Yes, a dream job. Super exciting when I booked it. Right. <laughs> but another job. You know, it was, sure. uh, I also do voiceovers. I do commercials. I do, like I said, I do other hosting jobs. So I was like, oh, great. This will be awesome too. To, to see where it, from what it grew, from where it came to where what it's grown to is, is mind boggling. It's now taken over six months of my life from, which I couldn't hmm. have done when I first booked this 10, 11 right. years ago. Uh, if you told me it was a commitment from October all the way through February or f actually September through February, I'd be like, I don't think I can do this. Now it has grown so much in scope and it's so fun and rewarding that I can't imagine life without it. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit more about your fostering experience. Um, you know, I've, I've volunteered with rescues before I've, wor I've worked in the rescue world. One of the things I hear a lot from from fosters, um, especially newer fosters, is that, mm -hmm. you know, how do you you know how do you let them all go? You know, mm -hmm. at the at the end, you know, you do you wind up getting you wind up getting attached, and you've been you've been fostering now. You know, you've got this merry go round of of mm -hmm. dogs coming through, coming through your house. How do you kind of keep from? you know, keep from getting, getting to attention. How, you know, how do you keep yourself sort of sane as they all, as they all eventually leave and get adopted? That is a great question, Bill. It gets easier with every one. The first one you will feel guilty about leaving or saying okay. goodbye to, yet you'll still feel happy that they have a home, but you're right. The very first one will be very difficult, especially at the time of our first foster 10 or 10 years ago or so. I had, I had very young kids. My kids are teenagers now, but they were babies then. And that was, you know, heartbreak, but we knew we had to do it. And then with each one, it gets easier and easier. In fact, 
the trend then reverses to where you don't, you really don't want to keep them right. because you're so excited to, you know, when you're fostering, you're not just, it's such an essential job because you are the bridge between the rescue portion and God knows what kind of background many of these dogs had and the forever home portion. You're the bridge that gets them to trust humans Again, because that is the number one thing. People say, yeah, you got a house train, you got to train. Yes, that's all true. Get them to the vet. That's all accurate. But the most important part of a foster is to, for many of these dogs from shady gray, gray area backgrounds, you've got to get them to trust humans and to feel comfortable right. around humans. And in my case, kids too. That is probably above all else, the most important thing. So that when it's time to be adopted, they can ease into their new family. Mm-hmm. Um, that has become it's so essential now for me and my family. So to the point where when you are uh, rather fostering, you're also advocating. You're not, yes, you're doing what you need to do for the puppy or the adult dog. I happen to be fostering an adult dog at the moment um, who have an even harder time of getting adopted. So I recommend them uh, if you're looking into fostering. They, to see how it, when you throw them online, finally, when you say, hey, this guy's ready for adoption. Is anyone interested? The The response you get is overwhelming. Now, yes, I have a bigger platform, so I understand it could be easier for me right. to get dogs adopted. No question about it. But even within my foster network, and it's a tremendous community here in New York and across the country, it, once you start advocating for the dog and putting the dog out there on social, getting the word out, you would be surprised how quickly they can get adopted and how rewarding that is to see. There's a meet and greet. Families come, they meet the dog. You get to tell them about the dog, their habits, their traits, their quirks, what kind of food they eat, what they like. And then again, you're, you're, you're presenting this family. It's often almost always a family with this incredible gift, an incredible gift that you have sort of prepared for them for however long you were fostering. I don't know. You're right. It can be hard with the first one, but by the time you get to number 32 or wherever I'm at, I just look forward to getting the guy adopted and it just becomes a mission for me each and every time. I also learned, the other part of it is when you have a variety like this, you're learning about each and every breed as you go. Yeah. You know, the large dogs, the small dogs, the terriers, the boxers, all down the line. And you get to then say, all right, it just allows you to be more comfortable with a variety of dogs, which I think for my job, practically speaking, I need to be. And uh, I also don't want to, selfishly don't want to settle on just one dog. I kind of want to experience them all as much as I can. Betty White, who, (laughs) RIP, incredible Hmm. animal animal advocate, uh, not only had 26 dogs, now I don't have room for 26 dogs in my home, but she she also fostered an additional like 40. I mean, it's incredible the amount of work she did, but she did it because she wanted you know, she wanted to experience as many different dogs as possible. And I, uh, I'm no Betty White, but I can see what she was. I can see where she was coming from. As, as my boys start to start to make an appearance here, as they as they have on plenty of other episodes before, um, you know, so people listening will will recognize that the one you were just hearing is is my older boy Chester. Yeah. yeah. What's up, Chester? So, so tell me. Tell me about your the first dog that you fostered and that and that first fostering experience. Well, the first foster was Sadie, who was uh, from the Sato Project, and um, but it was still yeah, it was still about ten years ago. 
And this is when I was just getting to know the Sato Project, hadn't gotten involved with them, hadn't traveled down to Puerto Rico with them, just knew them as any other rescue. Uh, she was incredible and uh, really ad cute, adorable. The Sato dogs are a indeterminate mix. Uh, They're you know, a little bit of everything. Chihuahua, Terrier, Dachshund, Ninny Pincher, uh, you name it. They're just this interesting mix and a uh, great family dog. Okay. It was surprisingly easy. Remember, I, you know, I'd grown up with a couple of dogs. My wife hadn't, but the point is, we'd been pretty familiar and comfortable with dogs, so it wasn't difficult. Yeah, it was a it was a great experience. Cool. Maybe how long? Right again, all over again. The first one was about two months. Yeah. Okay. All right. And Most fosters only last about two months. Oh sure, sure. Um, at at the moment, how how many are you fostering right now? Just one. Okay. Yeah, Do you generally stick to one at a time? I stick to one at a time. Uh, have I ever had two? It was one time I had two. But remember, we're in a New York City apartment. I've got right. two boys. Uh, we're, I gotta, I'm traveling a lot. You know, so it's, it's hard to... One is about as much as I can handle right now. Sure. Um, so you talked about how you know, through the fostering experience, you learn about all the different kinds of dogs, you know, the different yeah. breeds and all of that. What is something that you've learned about dogs through your fostering that has really kind of surprised you? I think the most, okay, uh, the most surprising thing would be that going into this 10 years ago, I thought of it as a potentially rocky road. In other words, I was in my mind thinking, well, some of them are going to be real challenges, and they were, but some of these dogs simply won't be ready for a home after we're done fostering. I, I don't know why I had that. I guess I just, I, I was naive and I didn't have the education. I certainly didn't, I'm not an animal trainer. I was learning as I went, but I just thought that some of them, you know, just wouldn't be ready. And then I would either be stuck with them hmm. and stuck is a bad word, but like, you know, they wouldn't get adopted or what, you know, what would happen? So, but what I, the most surprising thing throughout all this, all these years was every single dog can be rehabilitated. Every single dog, no matter, uh, we fostered a dog who came from an abusive background. This had nothing to do with Puppy Bowl or a TV show or social media or anything. We just, it was the holidays a few years ago. We knew of a dog that was abused up in, up uh, uptown here and needed to get rescued right away. And we volunteered, we drove up, took this little Shih Tzu home and honestly, the most scared dog you'd ever met in your life. If you put your hands near its face, it would snap at you. And that was one that me and my boys were like, oh boy, I don't think, I just don't think it's going to work. You know, this is, he's, this dog's biting my kids. It's, uh, it's not stopping and it just continues to be, but it was just scared. And so when I go back to, I go back to what I was saying earlier about trusting humans, this dog needed to trust humans again. Yeah. And so the most surprising thing in this, in all fostering, and I think you know where this story is going. The dog did eventually start to trust humans again, allowed us to pet mm -hmm. her, um, allowed us to walk her out without going crazy out in the New York City streets, and then eventually did get adopted by a woman in Pennsylvania. Uh, it was it, it was just another example of, of, of the surprise I'm talking about, which is every single dog can be rehabilitated. Every single dog deserves a home. I am not an expert animal trainer or a vet or anything like right. that or a behaviorist. I just, with a lot of love and patience uh, and uh, and all family, all hands on deck kind of thing, 
you know, you can make every dog ready for a home. Okay. Um, and you know, what do you do, you know, when, when that dog first comes in, that foster dog first comes to you, what is sort of the routine that, that you and your family go through to really set that dog up, you know, and get them on a, get them on a good path and, and really help them start to trust you guys? It's important to determine if a dog is motivated by food, which many are, by uh, touch. Many, the, for example, the dog I've got right now doesn't care about food, so you can't use it to train him. And right. he, even though he came to me house trained, it's another advantage of taking in an adult dog. They're usually <laughs> house trained or at least have the instincts to not go inside the house. So right. if that's important to you, if your rugs are important to you, <laughs> try to foster or adopt an adult dog. Uh, could care less about food, but loves to be cuddled behind the ears, a little scratch behind the ears. And it took us a couple of days to figure that out. But once we did, it was like, got it. We have a reward. Uh, so as long as, I guess, yeah, that's the first thing we do with every dog the first couple of days. Obviously, settle them into a routine. That's essential. Uh, the, the Let me then go backwards and say that starting them with a routine is essential. These guys have been through so much uh uh, chaos, you know, even if, even if it's the world's most successful and easy rescue and he was simply plucked up and transported to my home directly, it doesn't matter. It was still unsettling, you know, it was still chaotic. It's still right. over, upturned their lives. So it's so important for you to give them a routine from day one, from minute one. But after that, yeah, it's figuring out what is their reward, what motivates them. And once you figure that out, sometimes it's not cuddling either. Um, sometimes it's it, they're toy motivated. You know, right. sometimes they love to chase sticks or whatever. You know, that was another rescue that you know it was as long as he had a stick in his mouth, he was happy. So we'd go hmm. out stick hunting, and that was his reward. So as long as we figure that out, we know we can find the path to get them right. Okay, how much work do you find you you have to put in just getting these dogs? used to life in, you know, in a big city in New York? Well, the nice thing about, yes, it can be overwhelming, but it's interesting. I had that, again, same thought 10 years ago when I was saying that I was like, this is going to be a rocky road. We live in the city. It could be hard. Number one, city dogs in general, in gen I'm generalizing, but it tends to be true, are a little bit better behaved simply because of the fact that they've got to learn to share space, tight spaces with other humans. So in general, you know, living in an apartment building, sharing an elevator, sharing the hallways, um, they tend to be quieter. They tend to be more well behaved. I work at a, I work for a dog cafe here in the city where I have a month, a monthly residency where right. I, where I, uh, I host, I host either trivia nights or game nights. Uh, and it's the most, and they're all city dogs gathered in this space, which is hmm. not a big space, but they're the most well-behaved dogs you've ever seen. So I think something about living in the city, uh, if they've been here for a while, the majority of them are pretty, pretty good. It's not the, you're right. Fire trucks, UPS trucks, right. uh, the bikes, the noise can be overwhelming. So one of the first things to do is get them out on a walk as soon as possible. So they, like us, become used to the noise after a little while. And yeah, you'd be surprised. They get they get used to it pretty quickly. Uh, so okay. that's that's the plus. You mentioned you mentioned the one dog that you had who, you know, you were really unsure, you know, the one who was who was yeah. biting biting your kids and and you know, wasn't you know, was it was very afraid and everything. 
Tell me about another one where, where, you know, another sort of, sort of story, surprising story that, you know, of a dog you, you really weren't sure might, you know, was going to be able to be rehabilitated or, or ready to be adopted. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, okay. So he, so that was, I'm going to say after that, we had another dog that wasn't a biter, but was so shy. Um, the name was Tootie. Yes. After the facts of life character <laughs> and, uh, just a little terrier mix, cute one, but wouldn't look at you. Wouldn't look at anybody head down all the time. Wanted to live in the crate. Could have lived in the crate 24 seven. If we let, if we let her, um, that was a tough one because there wasn't any sort of, uh, uh, crisis or danger or, uh, you know, anything harmful that could happen in terms of biting or neglect, you know, like it's not like she was on a, (laughs) on a hunger strike and refused to eat. She did all the things dogs do, but just would not come out of the crate. Oh. Eventually we did the ET method and left right. a couple of, uh, in the movie, it was Reese's Pieces. For us, it was uh, her favorite treat. We left like a little trail coming out of the crate. Okay. And failed in, at first, but eventually, you know, one by one, slowly, slowly, she started coming out. And then we established a zone, um, yeah, you know, like a circle almost around the crate. Right. Like this was her little safe area. And then we expanded the circle as we went. So, um, yeah, it can run the gamut. And after about three weeks, uh, she, she was okay with being out of the crate. The thing is about crates is that in the world of rescue, which where crates are used all the time because oh, they're yeah. literally used in the rescues and the transports, et cetera, et cetera, in the shelters, you know, the crates become the only safe space for a lot of these dogs. Yep. When they first come to me, most of them want to hang out in the crate because that's the only world they know up until sure. that point. Yeah. So I think in her case, maybe she had been in the crate for so long or I don't know, you know, you never, that's the thing. You don't really know the story, even though the shelter mean well-meaning tries to tell you as much as they can, they don't have the full picture. So yeah, you have to put it together yourself. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about, um, the puppy bowl just because, Mm -hmm. you know, we are, you, you said you did just, just film it and you know, we are coming up on, when it's going to be, when it's going to be broadcast. Um, yep, and in yep. fact, this episode is going to be, I'm going to release it, uh, right before, right before the puppy ball. Um, so, um, talk about, talk about if you, if you got some maybe behind the scenes mishap stories, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm sure people, you know, people see the puppy bowl. It looks like, you know, the organized chaos that you described before. When did that organized chaos become, you know, real chaos? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, there was, let me think, there are a couple of moments, but probably the most obvious, egregious one was when a dog named Ginger in Puppy Bowl 10, so this is now seven, eight years ago. Um, again, great dog, little hyper, little mm-hmm. overexcited, little into toys. We were talking about toy-motivated dogs. Right. Uh, love to chew things. So chew down uh, my sock. I had the sort of <laughs> knee-high sock situation that a lot of refs have. Right. And l- just tore the sock right off. So it was exposed <laughs> cat, exposed skin, to- total scandal. No, but it was it was crazy because something like that had never happened before where I, <laughs> you know, normally, even though I'm the referee, I, I'm not the star of the show. The dogs are. I'm of trying course. to stay in the background and be unobtrusive. But 
this dog uh, made sure that I was seen and exposed to the whole world. Hmm. That was funny. They kept it, you know, because oh, sure. look, it takes us five days to shoot the puppy bowl. It's so many elements going into it. And it's only a two hour back then. Now it's a three hour event, but back then it was only a two hour event. So um, they, they, they could have cut that out, but they kept it in. And so we made it a penalty called uh, terrorizing the ref. We set them back five inches and repeated the first down. Okay. Um, is that, is that sort of stuff? Um, you know, are you sort of making up those calls on the spot? Yeah. So I have this, I have like a bank of calls that right. I can always turn to, you know, roughing the pupper, uh, you know, illegal odor downfield, right. things like that. <laughs> and then there's ones that just happen on the cuff. You know, if a dog jumps into the water bowl, which he did a couple of years back, <laughs> The water bowl is for drinking, as you know, but then right. it's, uh, I don't know, excessive bathing. And then you just make it up as you go. There's the penalties that are related to real football, uh, like pup interference or uh, roughing the passer. Yes. And then there's the <laughs> ones that are unique only to dogs, like sleeping on the sidelines. Okay. Um, and where do you see, you know, the puppy, you, you've been involved in the puppy bowl for, for a number of years. You haven't been involved yeah. from, from the very beginning. Um, right. Right. What, how is it, you know, how is it going to keep evolving over the years? That's a great question. Uh, I think that the only place to go is up. I think that there, uh, because of this new stadium that we've been in since 2020, it's so much bigger. And because they've expanded the show to three hours instead of two, I think there is more room for, well, even more dogs and even more shelters. So the way I see it expanding is simply as, as growing in size and scale. And, you know, if the goal is to adopt them all, which we do, we have a 100% adoption rate. That should come as no surprise to anybody that a dog yeah. featured in the puppy bowl will get adopted. But we do have a 100% adoption rate. Um, I guess my personal goal, I can't speak for all the producers of the show. Um, my personal goal would be not... I mean, I know I've, I've, it's, it's something that I've said for a while is to not just these puppies getting adopted is not the difficult part. The, the difficult part is the siblings of the puppies that are still in the shelters or the right. parent of the puppies. So that, you know, that mom, gosh, there's so many moms, you know, that have, yeah. they either come from a puppy mill, you know, and they've been, they've had to unfortunately just squeeze out babies for the rest for their whole lives. Right. Um, or like with the saddle dogs, they were abandoned on the side of a road with their litter. Those moms have the hardest time getting adopted. I don't know. I'd love, I'd love to see the parents of these puppies um, get some shine. So I've been trying in my little way. I foster as many adult dogs as I can, parent dogs as I can. Um, and, you know, hopefully that part of it will grow too. Hmm. Okay. In time. Um, what's one thing, you know, you've been involved in foster and rescue for, for a long time now. Um, what are some, you know, misconceptions about rescue mm. dogs that you want to kind of, that you want to challenge that, you know, that you found people have, um, and that you, you kind of want to, you know, show that yeah. these misconceptions are, are sort of misplaced. Here's an easy one that you can't get a pure breed in a rescue. And now I can't, I can't adopt a dog. I have to buy one online because, uh, for $4,000, because, uh, I want a cockapoo and I can't find one. The answer is, you, of course you can find them. You know, if look at puppy bowl, hundred dogs, I would say a third of them are pure breeds 
and and it's not hard to find. It's not like we had to search high and low for them. They so rescues have pure breed dogs. If you're looking for a German Shepherd, you know, Pointer, a Boxer, uh, a Dachshund, whatever you're looking for, um, Frenchies, which I know are so popular, they're there. They're in the shelters. You might have to work a little faster than if you were looking for, say, some mixed beautiful mutt, but uh, you you know they're there. So that's the biggest misconception that I found. And second, they think that they're going to be full of health issues. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that a lot. That's that's such that's that's wrong. And it's yeah. been proven wrong over the years. In fact, it's the opposite is true where um, scientists have found that, you know, mixed breed dogs are genetically stronger. You know, they're a little bit more robust uh, and it's the pure breeds that tend to have uh, more more health or genetic conditions throughout the over the years. Sure. So I guess those are the two. OK, yeah. Um Final thing, um, because you talked about, um, you know, wanting to kind of use use this platform that you've had and you've tried in your own small way to, to sort of advocate for the adult dogs. Um, why why should people um, consider adult dogs, you know, for fostering or for or for adopting? I mean, you talked about you talked about being housebroken, you know, more likely to be housebroken. What else? What are some of the other the other advantages to to having an adult dog? Above all else, it's the fact that they're often the hardest ones to get adopted. So therefore, they tend to be the most grateful to be in a home. And yes, you can feel when a dog is grateful. I'm sure you know that as a dog owner yourself. Yep. Uh, And you can feel how relieved they are. Yes, it takes time. But man, I mean, some of these fosters, like I said, their fostering ranges from two months to six months, depending on the dog and the, and the, the situation. But you can feel them relaxing after couple of days, couple of weeks, however long it takes and saying like, okay, I'm safe. I'm in a home. Uh, you know, life is good. I'm, I'm on the right track here and the gratitude. And they're just so eager to want to be a member of the family, to want to be part of a pack. Uh, and that that's, there's no, there's really no feeling like that. And then I mentioned the house training. They've often got some basic commands or can at least learn the commands uh, or are somewhat familiar with them. And uh, depending on your lifestyle, they can be better for you. Listen, one of the reasons I didn't adopt a dog in my 20s was because I was running all over the place. Right. And, you know, I was just nuts. Had I had an adult dog at that point, instead of thinking about adopting a puppy, I'm pretty sure it would have blended into my life a lot easier. So this is, man, adult dogs tend to be more chill. And so that might be better for a busy lifestyle. It might be better for an older a uh, person who yeah. maybe needs some companionship. It might be better for empty nesters if your kids have gone off to college. Even if you've got young kids, an older dog can be more chill and have a better temperament with younger kids. So really, I think no matter where you are in your life, um, you know, because we all know puppies are awesome. They require a lot of time. and Yes, attention, yes, they do. Especially in those crucial first couple of years as you're getting them used to it. And that's all great and wonderful too. But uh, yeah, those are that's my that's my pitch for adult dogs. It's All incredible, right. and that is uh, I think where we're gonna where we're gonna leave it. Um, of course, Puppy Bowl uh, is gonna air on the Discovery Channel Sunday, February thirteenth. And uh, yep. Dan, where can people find you in the world of the internet? Yeah, the world of the internet. You can. I'm busiest on Instagram, so just find me, Dan Shackner, or you can look on Instagram and search for the Puppy Bowl Ref, and you'll get all of my exploits right there. But what you'll mostly get is a lot of rescue stories. All right. Well, Dan Shackner, thank you so much for being on Hound Opinions. 
Thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. Thanks so much for checking out Hound Opinions. I'm Bill Mayeroff, and I'm the owner and chief canine officer of Big Wags Chicago Dog Training and Dog Walking. If you like what you hear, I'd be really grateful if you could give Hound Opinions a good rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Big Wags Chicago online at bigwagschicago.com. And I'm at Big Wags Chicago, all one word, on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. If you have a dog question you'd like me to answer on a future episode, or if you just want to say hi, email podcast at bigwagschicago.com. Thanks.